from New York, this is Democracy Now! This case is not about health and safety. I want to be clear that this case is about nothing but ideology. And this is incredibly dangerous for millions of people in this country who need access to medication abortion. The abortion pill mifepristone remains available at least for today after the Supreme Court delayed a ruling on the future of abortion pill until Friday. We'll look at the fight to keep abortion legal with Julie Burkhardt. She worked for eight years with abortion provider Dr. George Tiller before he was assassinated in church in 2009. We'll also speak to law professor Michelle Goodwin, author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Then to the historic settlement Dominion voting system versus Fox News for spreading lies and conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. Fox and Dominion have reached an historic settlement. Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion that caused enormous damage to my company, our employees, and the customers that we serve. Nothing can ever make up for that. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Thousands of people have fled Sudan's capital, Khartoum, amidst an increasingly dire humanitarian crisis as fighting between two rival military factions continues into a sixth day. Several attempts to impose a ceasefire have failed. The United Nations reports nearly 300 civilians have been killed, though the true toll is likely far higher. The U.N. also warns of worsening shortages of food, water, fuel and medical supplies, and Doctors Without Borders reports up to 70 percent of the hospitals in Khartoum and neighboring states are not able to function. This is Esra Abushama, a doctor at Sudan's health ministry. Most of the big and specialized hospitals are out of service and not offering any services of examination or treatment services for the patients because they have been targeted with shelling, and some of them because of the shortage of doctors and also because of electricity and water outages. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is in emergency talks today with members of the African Union, the Arab League and other regional leaders. The meeting comes as aid workers report tens of thousands of Sudanese refugees have fled across the border into Chad. In Yemen, at least 79 people were killed in a stampede and over 100 injured Wednesday evening at a Ramadan charity event in the capital, Sana'a. Witnesses told the Associated Press the crowd crush began after armed Houthis fired into the air to control the crowd, striking electrical equipment and causing it to explode. Two men who organized the event have been arrested and an investigation is underway. The United Nations is warning nearly 50 million people in West and Central Africa are at risk of hunger, as the region's food insecurity crisis has been compounded by war, COVID-19, rising prices and the effects of the climate catastrophe. Over 16 million children under five are facing acute malnutrition this year. Some 45,000 people in the Sahel are facing catastrophic hunger as fighting in the region has cut off humanitarian and food supply routes. Conflict around Lake Chad and in the Central African Republic have also made access near impossible. The World Food Programme struggling to respond to the crisis as it also grapples with a $900 million deficit. This is the World Food Programme's Alexandre Lacousset. 
So we only have around six or seven million people that we can reach, and even these six or seven million people will be on rations that will be reduced for the moment. We will not have enough money to give total food rations or the 2,000 calories someone needs each day to be able to survive. Meanwhile, a record-shattering heat wave has hit multiple Asian countries, including India, Bangladesh, Laos, Thailand, and parts of China. In the Indian state of Maharashtra, at least 13 people who attended an outdoor event died from heat stroke on Sunday. Scientific models predict extreme heat waves in India could get so bad they would not be considered survivable by 2050, even by a healthy person resting in the shade. This comes, as the U.N. said this week, India is poised to overtake China as the world's most populous country by June. A sweeping new study finds air pollution affects every stage of human life, from fetal development to old-age dementia. The Environmental Research Group at Imperial College London reviewed tens of thousands of studies looking at different impacts of air pollution, including delays in fetal growth, diminished lung volume in children, reduced cognitive ability of adolescents, and continuing adverse mental health effects throughout life. This comes as American Lung Association reports over one-third of U.S. residents regularly breathe unhealthy air with communities of color disproportionately affected. The Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, finds black people living in the U.S. in counties with more black primary care physicians live longer, whether or not they're treated by those doctors. Research has shown that when black doctors treat black patients, health outcomes are more positive, including in preventive care. Less than 6 percent of U.S. doctors are black, around half the proportion of black people in the U.S. population. The Supreme Court has pushed back a decision on the fate of the abortion pill mifepristone till Friday, keeping the country's most popular abortion method available for at least another two days, as the court reviews a ruling earlier this month which banned the drug. We'll have the latest on the state of abortion access in the United States after headlines. In Oklahoma— a county commissioner in McCurtain County resigned Wednesday, days after a local newspaper published secretly recorded audio revealing he spoke with local law enforcement officials about lynching black people and assassinating reporters. Mark Jennings' resignation came after Oklahoma's Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, called on him and three other officials to resign. They are County Jail Administrator Larry Hendricks, Sheriff's Investigator Alicia Manning, and McCurtain County Sheriff Kevin Clardy. In this clip, secretly recorded last month after a McCurtain County Board of Commissioners meeting and published by the McCurtain Gazette News, Jennings discusses the county's history of racist beatings and hangings with Sheriff Clarty. Listen carefully. I'm going to tell you something. If we're back in the day, would that doc, would Alan Marshall take a damn black and whoop their ass in the cell? I'd run for yeah. Well, it's not like that no more. I know. We'll take them down here on Mud Creek and hang them up with the damn rope. Yeah. But you can't do that. Think about it, they got more rights than we got. Another clip, Sheriff Clardy and Jennings are heard discussing hiring hitmen to kill two journalists, a publisher and his son, who'd reported on misconduct by county officials. Since the McCurtain Gazette News published those and other hateful comments, Sheriff Clardy has so far refused calls to step down. 
The sheriff instead accused the publisher of the McCurtain Gazette News, Bruce Willingham, of making the recording illegally and predicted he would face felony charges. Willingham and his son, whose potential murders were discussed in the tape, have turned the recordings over to the FBI and the Oklahoma attorney general. In Georgia, an independent autopsy has revealed an activist who was fatally shot by Atlanta police in January was struck by at least 57 bullets. 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Teran, known as Tortuguita, was killed as police raided an encampment of forest protectors opposing the construction of Atlanta's $90 million police training center, dubbed Cop City. No officers have been charged over the killing. Meanwhile, at least 42 activists arrested while protesting Cop City face state charges of domestic terrorism. In Kansas City, Missouri, the white homeowner accused of shooting a black teenager who rang his doorbell by mistake pleaded not guilty Wednesday to charges of first-degree assault and armed criminal action. Prosecutors say 84-year-old Andrew Lester exchanged no words with 16-year-old Ralph Jarl before opening fire on him through a glass door, striking him in the chest and head. Jarl had simply gone to the wrong house to pick up his younger twin brothers. On Wednesday, activist and family spokesperson Sean King published a photo showing Ralph Jarl out of the hospital and posing alongside attorney Lee Merritt. King wrote that Jarl is recovering from a traumatic brain injury and faces a long road to recovery, adding, had the bullet hit his head a fraction of an inch in any other direction, he would probably be dead right now, unquote. Here in New York, prosecutors in Saratoga County have charged a 65-year-old man with second-degree murder after he allegedly shot and killed 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis on Saturday. Kaylin and a friend were shot after their car mistakenly pulled into the wrong driveway. Meanwhile, in Elgin, Texas, two cheerleaders were shot by a man in the parking lot of a grocery store Tuesday after one of them mistakenly tried to get into the wrong car where the man was. Although she apologized, he opened fire on her and her friends. In Maine, four people were fatally shot in their home Tuesday, shortly before three others were wounded by gunfire on a busy interstate highway. Police arrested a 34-year-old who just completed a sentence for aggravated assault. They say he confessed to the shootings, which left his parents and two of their friends dead. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 166 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. Tennessee lawmakers have approved a bill to shield gun and ammunition manufacturers and dealers from lawsuits. Republican Governor Bill Lee has promised to sign the legislation, which comes less than a month after three nine-year-old students and three adults were killed by a shooter armed with an AR-15-style semi-automatic assault rifle at the Covenant School in Nashville. In response, Democratic State Representative Justin Jones of Nashville tweeted, There's a soul sickness in our state. 
when Tennessee Republican legislators are more concerned with protecting gun manufacturers from lawsuits than children from being killed by mass shootings. We said, protect children, not guns. They choose the guns. This is morally insane, Justin Jones said. Meanwhile, Special election dates have been set to fill the seats of the Democratic state representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson after Tennessee Republicans voted to expel them for leading peaceful protests against gun violence inside the Tennessee legislature. Both black lawmakers have been temporarily reinstated to their House seats and are expected to compete in primaries to be held on June 15th, with an election set for August 3rd. Republicans in Montana's legislature are attempting to censure Democrat Zoe Zephyr, Montana's first and only openly transgender lawmaker. This comes after Zephyr delivered a searing condemnation Tuesday of a bill that would ban gender-affirming health care for youth, among other anti-trans measures. If you are forcing a trans child to go through puberty when they are trans, that is tantamount to torture. And this body should be ashamed. If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. The bill is expected to be passed and signed by the Montana Republican governor. Florida has banned teaching about gender identity and sexuality throughout K-12 to in all public schools, extending the ban known as Don't Say Gay that previously went through third grade. Teachers who violate the ban could have their licenses suspended or revoked. Joe Saunders of Equality Florida said, quote, This rule is by design a tool for curating fear, anxiety, and erasure of our LGBTQ community. And the Biden administration has charged four U.S. citizens from a pan-Africanist group with conspiring with the Russian government to sow discord in U.S. elections. Omali Yeshitela, chair of the African People's Socialist Party, faces charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States, along with Penny Hess, Jesse Neville and Augustus Romaine Jr. Three Russians were also named in an indictment unsealed by the Justice Department on Tuesday. This follows a violent FBI raid on the activist properties in Missouri and Florida last summer. Speaking to Democracy Now! in August of last year, Amalia Shatella called the FBI's case against his organization ridiculous and asinine. The work we've been doing for, for 50 years as a party and that I've been doing for nearly 60 years is about the liberation of black people. I want to be clear on that. And the government is clear on that. They use Russia. They use uh, this nonsense, uh, even at a time where we've seen white people scaling the walls of the Capitol, threatening to kill the vice president, the feet on the, on the desk of Nancy Pelosi. And you talk about we have some role under the Russians of contaminating the pristine that happen in this country. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. When we come back, the abortion pill mifepristone remains available at least until Friday, after the Supreme Court delayed a ruling on the future of mifepristone. We'll look at the fight to keep abortion legal. Stay with us. 
someone's always coming round here, trailing some new kill. Says I seen your picture on a hundred dollar bill. What's a game of chance to you'd him? It's one of real skill. So glad to meet you, Angela. Picking up the ticket shows there's money to be made. Elliot Smith's Angelus, covered by Shannon Lay. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court pushed back their decision on the abortion pill mifepristone until Friday, keeping the country's most popular abortion method available for at least another day, as the court reviews a ruling earlier this month which banned the drug. The Center for Reproductive Rights said the court, quote, should have issued a stay, but instead the court continues to delay any action. In the meantime, abortion providers and their patients across the country have been living in chaos, unclear if they'll still be able to prescribe and access this critical medication, unquote. The Justice Department and drug maker Danko Laboratories warned the court if it does not step in, the supply of the medication could end almost immediately. They say one version of the medication would be considered misbranded, and the generic version would be rendered unapproved. This week, the maker of the generic version of mefepristone sued the FDA in a bid to keep the drug on the market, no matter what the court rules. The original April 7th ruling in the fast-moving case was by the Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, a longtime abortion opponent and activist. The Supreme Court's orders on Wednesday were issued by Justice Samuel Alito, who also wrote the decision in the Dobbs ruling last year that ended the constitutional right to abortion, overturned Roe v. Wade. For more on all of this and the fight to keep abortion legal and accessible, we're joined by two guests. In Wichita, Kansas, Julie Burkhardt is with us. She's president of Wellspring Health Access and co-owner of Hope Clinic. She worked for eight years with the abortion provider Dr. George Tiller before he was assassinated in church in 2009. Last May, her clinic, which was set to open in just weeks, was firebombed by an anti-abortion ar arsonist. Her recent piece for Salon is headlined, I Own the Only Abortion Clinic in Wyoming. Post-Roe America is a Tragedy and an Opportunity. We're also joined by Michelle Goodwin, visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School and founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She hosts the Ms. Magazine podcast on the issues with Michelle Goodwin and is the author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Last year, she wrote a guest essay for The New York Times headlined, I Was Raped by My Father and Abortion Saved My Life. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Michelle Goodwin, let's begin with you. Start off with what this temporary stay—well, the first one was temporary until this past Wednesday, um, and now until Friday. What does this stay mean? 
Well, this stay could mean that the court is still deliberating. It could mean that there are justices that are drafting dissenting opinions, concurring opinions. We don't know, but it means something more, which is that mifepristone is still available. It is still available under the conditions that were set by the FDA prior to Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's opinion. That is the judge in Amarillo, Texas, that decided that mifepristone should be removed from the marketplace, basically citing with the petitioners who claimed that the drug was rushed to the market and that it was unsafe. It's worth noting, Amy, as you've discussed before, that this is a drug that was under review for 54 months when it was put on the marketplace in 2000. Uh, To put that in comparison with other FDA-approved drugs in that same period, they were reviewed for about 15 months. And then secondly, the claims that it is an unsafe drug really is quite unfounded when the FDA did approve mifepristone to be in the marketplace. It had already been used in Europe for decades. And we know through decades of research since 2020, or since 2000, excuse me, when it was placed in the marketplace, that it is a drug that has lower morbidities than Tylenol, than Viagra, than penicillin. So we don't know what the Supreme Court will do on Friday. But one more point with this is that there are over 200 drug manufacturers that have signed a letter expressing their deep concern about the ruling that came out of Amarillo, Texas, because it could affect more than just mifepristone and drugs related to reproductive health. It could be virtually any drug that is petitioned to be removed from the U.S. marketplace. So, Michelle Goodwin, talk about Samuel Alito and his role. I mean, this came under his jurisdiction, but Justice Alito is well known as the man who um, is the author of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So what it means that he um, was the original person who um, uh, extended the stay uh, and now has done it again. Well, it's it's hard to read the tea leaves with that, but you make an excellent point, which is that Justice Alito authored the decision in Dobbs that June 24th, 2022 decision just less than a year ago that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, Planned Parenthood um, v. Casey was a 1992 decision and Roe v. Wade, 1973. So we're talking about decades of precedent then rendered virtually meaningless through the Dobbs decision. You know, it's worth noting that the Dobbs decision was a case that came out of the state of Mississippi, where there had only been one abortion clinic. And in that state, if you're a black woman, you're 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. But Justice Alito's um, opinions in this domain must also be linked to the Burwell v. Hobby Lobby decision, which is one that challenged the mandate through the Affordable Care Act that contraceptives would be available. And Justice Alito authored that decision, too, which basically meant that employers 
members who claim some religious objection to contraception could deny that to their female employees. So we see a trajectory of cases with Justice Alito um, that side against reproductive health rights and justice. But we don't know exactly what the court will do in this particular case, particularly given that drug manufacturers have spoken out. And one last point is that in the Dobbs decision, the court said that these matters would be returned to the states, that the laboratories of democracy are in the states, and that if people want access to abortion, then that's the place in which these issues should be settled. By Judge Kaczmarek's order, that basically flies in the face of the Dobbs decision, meaning that if his order were allowed to stand in states like California, Illinois, New York, mifepristone would no longer be available for this use, therefore making hash of what the Supreme Court issued just last year. Michelle Goodwin, what do you think of um, Congress members like AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, saying that the Biden administration should simply ignore this ruling? Um, what are the grounds for this? Well, you know, right now, she's not alone. There are also doctors that are articulating just how distressing this happens to be. So if we set the ground a bit more, which I think is really important, the United States is the deadliest place in all of the industrialized world to be pregnant. It's alarming, and I know for many Americans that is shocking, but we rank somewhere around 55th in the world in terms of maternal safety. That is, it's far safer to be pregnant and to have a child with dignity in countries that have been recently war-torn. Um, in the United States, the Supreme Court conceded in 2016 in a case, Whole Woman's Healthy Hellerstead, that a woman is 14 times more likely in the United States to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. So what does this then mean for doctors, not just AOC, for doctors? in states across the country now that have banned abortion, they face, such as in Texas, 99 years incarceration, $100,000 in fines, um, losing their medical license to practice if, in fact, they are found to have tried to save a woman's life uh, at a point before she was very, very close to death. And this is relating to a lawsuit that is right now in the state of Texas brought by five women who were not necessarily pro-choice. In fact, some articulated anti-abortion views, but it turned out that they would need abortions to save their lives. And in times that were most critical, with sepsis setting in, with one woman gestating twins, but one of the twins dying, and that causing uh, health effects for her and also the other fetus, in those instances, doctors in Texas felt that they were handcuffed, that they could not respond to the urgent needs of their patients. And so what we hear from doctors, what we hear from AOC is that something must be done now. This is a time that is much like Jim Crow. It is a new Jane Crow in the United States where there are free states and there are those where people no longer have access to bodily autonomy. Um, you have now the leading pharmaceutical companies uh, in this country uh, signing a letter um, talking about the danger to not just mifepristone, but to all drugs. And the idea that a judge is overruling scientists at the FDA, Michelle, Professor Goodwin. 
Yes. Yes. Well, that is a very deep concern and worry. Um, let's be clear, we're still in a pandemic. But note that over the last three years now, there have been people who have denied uh, that there is such a thing as COVID, that there is a pandemic. There are people who have been pressing that COVID vaccines be taken out of the marketplace. There are people who have moral opposition to vaccines. There are parents who do not want to vaccinate their children against smallpox. You can imagine that those types of individuals could also then petition uh, a judge that they select, that they know might have similar views, and petition that judge in order for those types of drugs to be removed from the marketplace as well. Now, years ago, that might have seemed to be something extreme and that would never happen in the United States. But we're in a critically unusual time where a case such as this has now reached the Supreme Court. And what that does mean is the potential for other kinds of petitioners to come forward who are against other prescription medications. And in some ways, when you look at the Burwell v. Hobby Lobby decision, there is an aspect of that that has already been visited by the Supreme Court. I want to bring Julie Burkhart into this conversation. She is president of Wellspring Health Access and co-owner of Hope Clinic. She worked with Dr. George Tiller, as I said earlier, who was assassinated in church, well-known abortion provider in Wichita. Um, Julie, just respond, if you could start off by talking about the state of abortion access in this country and your concerns about what the Supreme Court will rule and how it affects your practice and uh, pregnant people all over the country. Yes, um, thank you, and good morning. Um, well, we have seen with my work um, in both Illinois and in the state of Wyoming, uh, which um, are two very different states, one where we have legal protections in Illinois and in Wyoming, where we have been in litigation and battling the state so that people can maintain their bodily autonomy. Um, we see primarily in Illinois, we've had an uptick. Um, we're seeing over 800 patients monthly now. Our patient volume continues to increase, um, has been increasing um, after the fall of Roe in June of 22. We see primarily our patients um, coming from states that have now banned abortion care. So Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, um, any of the states that you see surrounding that sea of blue, which is now Illinois. We also see that um, 50% to more than 50% of our patients, which um, is in line with the national um, numbers that we see for medication abortion, uh, those patients who are coming to us are uh, requesting to terminate a pregnancy via uh, mifepristone and mesoprostol. Can you talk about the clinics um, that you run? Can you talk about what happened in Wyoming and where you are in Wichita, where George Tiller died? Yes. Um, well, um, 
I will start off with Wyoming. Uh, we were set to open our doors in June, actually June 14th of 22, um, just 10 days before the court ruled. However, in uh, late May of last year, we had an anti-choice arsonist um, set our clinic on fire. And so we have spent these past months rebuilding the clinic, and we are hopeful that we'll be able to open our doors next week. Um, it's been um, quite a trek. Um, we have, uh, law enforcement has apprehended the arsonist um, just a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, you know, it was a, a 22-year-old um, Casper, Wyoming a woman, Lorna Green, who decided that um, abortion was disturbing to her. She stated in an affidavit and decided to set our clinic ablaze. But we did not want to let that deter us. People in every part of this country deserve to have access to reproductive health care and to make their own decisions and determinations about their bodies. And so we decided that we would uh, dig our heels in even further in Wyoming and make sure that people have access to abortion care. I mean, my God, Julie Burkhart, you're a certified nurse practitioner. Um, your Wyoming clinic um, was bombed with such fire, too. Um, the clinic in Wichita, well, um, George Tiller, the man you worked with for years, was murdered. What— Explain your bravery, why you continue. This is extremely real, real, uh, real to you, not to mention what happens to women uh, who are under extreme duress and—or uh, pregnant people who need, say they need to have an abortion. Well, sometimes I just don't know how to answer that question. Um, I just have a, a very deep conviction and feel that if we are living in the United States, people deserve everywhere, and no matter who you are, deserve access to quality health care, amongst other things, and people must be able to make their own decisions about their own bodies. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, living in New York or California or Wyoming or Oklahoma or Kentucky, people everywhere must have the ability to make decisions about their own lives. Otherwise, I don't feel that what we stand for in the United States then really exemplifies that intent of having true freedom for everyone in this country. Let me ask you something. Uh, the woman who was charged in Wyoming who set fire to your clinic, um, she wasn't charged with domestic terrorism? Well, she is being—and the case is still in process. There is supposed to be a grand jury hearing, I've been told, um, next month. Um, I have not heard back yet from prosecutors. She is going to be charged under FACE, 
And I'm not sure what the other charges are at this time. I do know that the penalty carries um, five to 25 years, I believe, um, in prison. Um, also, uh, mifepristone is part of a two-drug um, regimen. Uh, the second is misoprostol. Now, if mifepristone, if people can't get it, they can use the second drug. It's not quite as effective, and it has more side effects. Is that right? So, people who are pregnant will be endangered um, uh by simply having the second drug, though, um, if you can talk about that, what this ruling means. Well, and this is where it's been such a, um, you know, we have just been in limbo. It's been a ping pong effect. Um, you know, regimens um, regarding medication abortion were changed um, after Row fell back in June because of people coming from banned states over to legal states and not wanting to put patients or physicians in a precarious situation going back to a banned state. So here we are in a different situation with medication abortion, where we're looking at potentially providing a mesoprostol only regimen for our patients. Um, and it's concerning because we want to continue to ensure that patients, if they need abortion care and they're coming from banned states, if they can get to a clinic in a state where it's legal, that they are not going to go back to their home state and being prosecuted by overzealous um, you know, attorneys in those states. Um, so we, we have protocols in place that we will use if we need to, but it is definitely going to put a burden and a hardship on those patients. And um, our, we suspect that more people uh, might opt for procedural abortions than medication abortions at that point, but we, but we will see. And, you know, this also makes it harder, especially for people who are getting medication abortion in the mail who are in states uh, where it is illegal or going back to a state where it's illegal, this makes it that much harder on those people who need access to good quality health care. I want to end with Michelle Goodwin. Um, you now have a situation, even without this ruling, where abortion is illegal, basically, in something like, well, more than a dozen states and 13 states following the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last year. Georgia also bans abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy, uh, before many know that they're pregnant. Florida now the same. Um, we are talking about situations where, even in the case of, in the case of rape and incest, if you can talk about what this means for people across this country, and take it back to um, Kaczmarek's decision, a well-known anti-abortion activist before he came, became a federal judge under Trump um, in Texas, uh, and now turns out that he erased his name from a journal piece he had written against abortion when he was being considered by the Senate. And 
the language he used in his decision both talked about unborn humans—and this is being repeated in further decisions—and uh, referred to the Comstock Act. If you can summarize for us where this country is headed, in a legal direction, and then when this is considered in referenda across the country, when people at the grassroots have a choice to decide the direction they go in. Well, it's a dangerous decision. There's so much that we could talk about with this, uh, in that if you think about Roe v. Wade, a 7-2 to opinion, five of those seven justices were Republican-appointed. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood. This gives you some sense of just uh, the wide gap and distance between where we began and where we are now. In Roe v. Wade, to your point with regard to language, in Roe v. Wade, the court said that there is a potential life during a pregnancy. And that's right, because not all pregnancies will end in birth. About 15 to 20 percent will end in miscarriage or stillbirth. And the language now that we see coming out of the Kesmeric ruling, using that language of unborn human child, and then writing in footnotes the preference for using this, that this is the accurate terminology to be used in such cases, really stretches medicine and science, um, because it's just simply not accurate to consistently what had been in American law, and also gives the perception that all pregnancies necessarily end in birth, which they simply do not. That also has ramifications then when we think about civil punishments and criminal punishments as well. We right now have in South Carolina lawmakers that are pushing forward a bill that would call for the death penalty against women who have abortions and people with the capacity for pregnancy who have abortions. There is this false sense that all pregnancies will necessarily necessarily end in a birth. And if that is interrupted in any way, then the state can criminally punish and also impose civil fines. But when you mentioned that there are more than a dozen states that are now in this position, if we took a map and we looked at the map of the Confederacy, of American slavery, of Jim Crow, you would find that it fits quite well over the map that is now anti-abortion. And there's something to be said about those states that were never beacons of freedom for women or people of color or black people particularly. And they are not beacons of hope of freedom now for black women and for people with the capacity for pregnancy in those states. And we've paid far too little attention in drawing that line. And if we draw that line from history into the present, then there are certain things that we do know. And that is save for federal interventions, either through the Supreme Court, Congress or executive order. These are places that have never tried to be accountable and to create remedy for the past horrors that were inflicted during slavery and during Jim Crow. To bring it all back to Dobbs, that decision that uh, shows great solicitude to the state of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi claimed that it needed this abortion ban in order to protect the health and safety of women. Nothing could be really further than the truth. But if we think about this, it wasn't until 2013 that the state of Mississippi ratified the 13th Amendment, Amy. The 13th Amendment was that amendment which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, one that was ratified in 1865 
but it took until 2013 for Mississippi to get there. And Mississippi is still working, and many of these other states, on that long arc to freedom. They're not quite there, and certainly the backdrop of where they are with regard to abortion bans shows how far away they are from recognizing the human dignity and the personhood of people with the capacity for pregnancy in their states. Well, Michelle Goodwin, we want to thank you for being with us. Of course, we'll continue to cover this issue. The stay um, uh, has been put in place until Friday, until tomorrow. Uh, Michelle Goodwin is visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School, author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And thank you to Julie Burkhart in Wichita, Kansas, president of Wellspring Health Access, co-owner of Hope Clinic. She worked with Dr. George Tiller for years. Coming up, Fox News has agreed to pay an historic settlement, $787.5 million, three-quarters of a billion dollars, to Dominion Voting Systems for spreading lies. Stay with us. Renaissance by Dinner Party. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to look at the historic settlement reached this week to end Dominion Voting System's lawsuit against Fox News for promoting lies about voting machines being rigged against Trump in the 2020 election. On Tuesday, shortly after a jury was picked for the trial, Fox News agreed to pay Dominion three-quarters of a billion dollars. That's $787.5 million to settle the lawsuit. As part of the deal, Fox was not required to apologize for airing lies about Dominion. It's believed to be the largest media defamation settlement in history. But Fox's legal battle is still not over. Fox still faces a $2.7 billion defamation suit from another election technology company, Smartmatic. In the months after the 2020 elections, Fox repeatedly claimed Dominion and Smartmatic were part of a vast conspiracy to rig the election. Fox repeatedly aired conspiracy theories, even though some of the network's most prominent hosts, including Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, as well as Fox Corporation chair Rupert Murdoch, were privately admitting they knew Trump's election fraud claims were false. 
In one private exchange on November 19th, Tucker Carlson wrote to Laura Ingram about one of Trump's lawyers. Carlson wrote, Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane, he said. Ingram then replied, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. Carlson replied, it's unbelievably offensive to me. Our viewers are good people and they believe it, he said. Rupert Murdoch privately described the election conspiracy theories as, quote, really crazy stuff and damaging, he said. Despite this, Fox continued to amplify lies about the election. This is a November 2020 clip um, of Trump attorney Sidney Powell being interviewed by Maria Bartiroma about Dominion. I've never seen voting machines stop in the middle of an election, stop down and assess the situation. I also see reports that Nancy Pelosi's longtime chief of staff is a key executive at that company. Richard Blum, Senator Feinstein's husband, significant shareholder of the company. What can you tell us about the interest on the other side of this Dominion software? Well, obviously, they have invested in it for their own reasons and are using it to commit this fraud to steal votes. I think they've even stolen them from other Democrats in their own party who should be outraged about this also. After Tuesday's settlement was reached, Justin Nelson, an attorney for Dominion, spoke outside the courthouse. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. Over two years ago, a torrent of lies swept Dominion and election officials across America into an alternative universe of conspiracy theories causing grievous harm to Dominion and the country. Today's settlement of $787,500,000 represents vindication and accountability. Lies have consequences. Since the settlement was reached, Fox has barely covered the news on its broadcaster website. On Tuesday night, the lead story on the Fox News website was headlined, Elon Musk reveals to Tucker Carlson whether he's seen evidence of alien life. We're joined now by Angelo Carusone. He is president of Media Matters. Media Matters recently sent a Federal Elections Commission complaint against Fox News based on evidence from the Dominion lawsuit. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Angelo. It's great to have you with us. First, respond to this unprecedented settlement. I mean, it's obviously a significant number. Um, I mean, it is, in your, like I said, it's unprecedented. And But I also would note that Fox's its scale of deception here was industrial scale. So, you know, in a way, it's proportional to the to the, to the scope and scale of what Fox News did in terms of their defamation. They didn't just make one comment, as you noted. I mean, this was a two-month pattern where they were repeatedly reinforcing the idea that the election was stolen. And how it's so tied into Dominion is that the foundation of that big lie was that these voting systems, these machines, were somehow manipulating the votes, manipulating the counts, or flipping the counts for for you know from, from Trump to Joe Biden. So without this specific defamation, without the claims they were making and falsehoods about Dominion and also Smartmatic, you would not be able to then construct that big lie narrative on top of it that the election was stolen. So it's, it's really significant. Um, 
how the lies about Dominion tie into the larger story that the right wing tells their audience about the election being stolen. So it's a big deal. It's, it's probably not going to change Fox, though. There's going to need to be a lot more consequences in order for that to happen. Well, let's talk about the fact that part of the settlement was not an apology. Um, Dominion did not force an apology from Fox. I want to go to a conversation um, that Dominion CEO John Poulos had with CNN's Jake Tapper on Wednesday. Why not force them to tell all those people, all those misled Americans, which polls indicate millions of them still believe this nonsense, why not force them? to say, we shouldn't have done that. That was false. You have been misled. Joe Biden actually won. Dominion and Smartmatic and all that stuff was operating fine. Why not force them to do that? Was, was it just like, we'll give you $200 million more if you don't force us to do it? Because you could have forced them to do it. Uh, well, A, the defamation, uh, the, the, the defamation part of the law does, is really not built around apologies. Uh, it is built to um, compensate for damage. And I can tell you, uh, we, we had a company-wide call yesterday, and, and the unanimous consent in our company is if we could trade this all in and go back in time and have our company reputation back, we would do so exactly. every single time. Exactly. So that's John Poulos, the CEO of Dominion, um, who also argued that just the size of the settlement said to the world um, what Fox had done wrong. But Jake Tapper's comment that those in a silo who are just walks, watching Fox may not know. Yeah. I mean, the box isn't going to tell them about the size of the settlement. They'll just tell them that a settlement was reached, which is what they've been doing. They're not actually giving them a sense of this is a really, really big number. And the other thing is that, you know, it's one thing not to get an apology, but an acknowledgement that what you said wasn't true is really important because Rupert Murdoch actually said it himself during the discover during the deposition. He said Fox News was the only entity in the country that could could correct the election lies that Trump was telling his people, that his people believed. Um, that is something that Rupert Murdoch acknowledged, that only Fox News has that influence and power over a very, very large part of this audience. So if they really want their reputation back or to sort of undo it or even just undo some of that damage, um, the only way for that to happen is actually for Fox News to tell their audience that they misinformed them and that they did it knowingly. Obviously, that will never happen. And that's in part why the settlement was so high, because for Fox News, they were willing to pay you know, more money just to avoid the possibility that their audience would find out that they, that their that their the network was knowingly misinforming them. And worse for Fox, that they that they didn't actually believe that the election was stolen. That's the very thing that started all of this in the first place. Their audience would turn against them for that. Um, that's why they, they started to tell these tall tales, because they were afraid that their audience was mad at them. And to say the least, this was an 11th hour settlement. The jury was already impaneled. Um, so much had come out um, uh, during discovery. Uh, MSNBC recently aired audio recorded by former Fox News producer Abby Grossberg of a Trump campaign official privately admitting to a Fox News producer that the campaign lacks evidence of election fraud. Are any of the machines—I know it was on War Room the other day with Steve Bannon—have any of the machines been looked at? He had said that one was looked at in Georgia. Uh, I'd have to check on that in terms of Georgia. 
I know during the audit they did check on those machines. Um, they're really, you know, the, the, if we just go off the record for one sec here. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, want, I don't want us to say it if it's not. That's why we're yeah, checking. I would, I would, I would, I think they have looked at the machines. Uh, when, the, when the Secretary of State did its audit, uh, there, there was a lot, I think a fair bit of looking at the machines. Um, you know, the audit came in pretty darn close to what the machine count was with the receipts. So, you know, I don't know the outcome of those, but our understanding, again, this is from the Secretary of State's office, was that there weren't any physical issues with machines on those inspections. So talk about the significance of this, Angela Carson. We're hearing a Trump official responding to a Fox producer. I mean, I think the one thing that this just reinforces is what we've been one of the things we've been pointing out repeatedly, which is that Fox knew um, and that they all kind of knew. They all knew that what they were saying wasn't true. You know, it, it this is, you know, if they really believed these things, it would be preposterous. It would be baseless. It would change the orientation. You know, it's, it's obviously spreading misinformation is bad. Believing it and spreading it is a little bit different because you're not necessarily a bad actor and there's still a potential for you to be changed or at least your intentions aren't a lie. In this case, it's so much worse because what it shows and what that audio specifically demonstrates is that it wasn't just Fox that was sort of didn't, you know, had some skepticism, but was still promoting it because as they were saying, as Fox has been saying publicly, well, they were just reporting on something that other people were saying. That has been Fox's defense. And that's going to be Fox's defense in Smartmatic. They, they've already indicated that that's what they're going to push in their defense there is that, well, it, we were just doing neutral reporting. We were letting them do it. What that audio reveals is that that's not neutral reporting that they were actually in cahoots, that not that the Trump people also didn't believe the things that they were saying, but were saying it because it was a way to attack and undermine the legitimacy of the election and try to keep themselves in power, and that they needed places like Fox News to take those deceptions, to launder them and add some validity to it. And so to me, that's the significance of that audio, is that it actually shows the other side of this, and it, it totally obliterates the little bit of defense that they still have for subsequent litigation. And it, it will hurt them not only with Smartmatic, but will also hurt them a lot with these shareholder derivative lawsuits that are currently unfolding, because this goes to show the level of intentionality of deception on the part of Fox News and how they breach their, their, their fiduciary responsibilities. Angelo, the lever is reporting that Fox's massive settlement with Dominion voting systems could also mean a tax break as large as $213 million for Fox, almost yeah. a third of what— they're paying out. I know. What a world. Um, <laughs> I think the thing to me, and that's partly why I said earlier, that's not to dismiss the significance of this. This is a really big settlement. But one of the things that Fox did pretty promptly to make sure that everybody knew it was going to be OK for them, specifically their investors and their shareholders and the markets, is to is to get two pieces of information out there. One is, don't worry, we're going to be able to deduct, you know, 200 plus million dollars of this from our taxes, and that will help us. And the other thing they pointed out was that we're actually in the middle of contract renegotiations, and we're trying to get all everybody that has cable in this country to pay us a dollar more, which means that in one year alone, Fox News will make about 980 million more dollars in profit if they're successful. And they're supposed to be renegotiating the very same time that the trial was happening. So for them, 
it was worth paying it just to get it over with so that they could focus on these contract renewals because honestly the contract renewals are worth more to them in profit than um, than you know this this particularly significant settlement. So well, they made Fox made sure everybody knew that yesterday so that the markets could be reassured that that they're going to be just fine. Angelo Carasone, we want to thank you so much for being with us, thank President you. of Media Matters. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. 